Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold, and it is that time of the week, which I always look forward to. Dr. Peter Kapsner and I are going to continue our series in the Old Testament. We're looking at uh, people from the Old Testament, and today we're going to talk about Naomi, which I can hardly wait, Peter. This is going to be a great hour. Yeah, I mean, this is one of those books of the Bible that we can get into, which has multiple characters that are interesting, and, and Naomi is is... I, she really is sort of the focus of the story. It begins and ends with her, even though so much of it is about Ruth. We really see this journey of Naomi, and I'm really excited for that, too. Yeah, and I will say up front that today's content could include some adult-themed subjects, which could make me very uncomfortable. Well, Andy, <laughs> I, th- I think we can anticipate that, right? In terms of uh, in terms of some of our prep, we are like, huh? I'm pretty sure in those moments, my line's going to go really fuzzy, Bill. So yeah. we'll, just, we'll, leave, we'll leave it to you and our guests today. Well, my microphone could go fuzzy, too. So we're just going to leave our guest to be handling this topic. <laughs> Dr. Rebecca Ree is our guest today. She earned her Ph.D. in religion and literature from Boston University. She has uh, a lot of focus on how direct speech is used in the Hebrew narrative, which is going to make her the perfect guest for today. She's been on the show multiple times. Uh, we're always glad to have her back because uh, no one is more prepared than Rebecca Ree. Rebecca, welcome. Oh, thank you for having me. So just as an aside, how many weeks did you prepare for this hour? Um, <laughs> let's see, probably between three and four. See, isn't that amazing, <laughs> Peter? You know, that really is, because that's a year's worth of show prep for the two of us, is it not? <laughs> <laughs> Minimum, yes, exactly. Minimum. <laughs> exactly. So let me get all I know about Naomi off the table right away. Uh, Ruth's mother-in-law, and yes. this is from the uh, uh, the book of Ruth, and yes. her name, uh, we don't know for certain, but it's possible that it means good, pleasant, lovely, and winsome. And it's going to be interesting because that turns the corner in this story a little bit later, but uh, you're you're starting to steal my thunder. Okay. Let me just stop then right there and Rebecca, (laughs) take it away. (laughs) So yeah, the, the subject of today's study um, of favorite Hebrew Bible people is someone that I chose for one main reason. And that is because she's so vocal. I mean, she is someone who does not take life sitting down and she certainly doesn't take life shutting up. So rather she's a person who, reveals what she thinks and what she feels loud and clear. And it turns out that we have a lot to learn from her specifically about what it means to fulfill our purpose when we're coming from a place of pain and utter depletion. And isn't that something we could all use? Amen. Absolutely. So um, as you said, we're we're talking about um, Naomi today, which I'm just going to say her name Naomi because we're just so used to saying it that way, but it's pronounced Naomi in the Hebrew. And it's also, she's found in the book of Ruth. And you said she's her mother-in-law. And I think sometimes she gets a little overlooked because Ruth um, is such a paragon of virtue, but we're going to let her literally have her say today. And we're going to hear three specific points that she makes with her direct speech, which are Naomi's speech reveals her pain. Naomi's speech reveals her love. 
And finally, Naomi's speech reveals her picture of God. And then we're going to kind of wind that up and talk about, well, what is, how does that all apply to us? How do we, how do we um, fulfill our purpose learn, listening to Naomi? So let's, let's talk about that first point, Naomi's speech expressing her pain. Um, to say that Naomi's had a hard life would be an understatement because kind of like Job, she endures so much hardship and suffering just like back to back. And the first thing we learn about her is that she's married to a, a, a man named Elimelech and has two sons by him, Mahlon and Chilion. And if you're a reader of the Hebrew Bible, already you're starting to tense up a little bit because those two names could respectively be translated as sick and don't feel well. <laughs> um, <laughs> like this is not going in a good direction. Um, so the three of them leave their home in Bethlehem and move to Moab, which is on the other side of the Dead Sea, because there's family, famine in the homeland. And so affliction number one is famine and exile to, to a foreign country. She's already, Naomi's already experiencing this. So while they're in Moab, um, Eli, Melech, Masalon, and Hilion, they all die. And Naomi is left with only her two daughters-in-law, who are Moabites, they're local, named Orpah and Ruth. And in the Bible, we know um, widows occupy one of the lowest runs of society. I mean, they're basically um, subsisting on the sufferance of others, depending on the charity of others to survive. And this kind of tracks with Naomi's decision to leave Moab and eventually return to Bethlehem because she hears that God is providing food there. So I think, you know, in her mind, she's like, well, if I'm going to have to weather being a widow, I might as well take my chances at home. And the first time we hear Naomi speak, she's just about to make that journey home. So I want you to listen to an abridged version of what she says to Orpah and Ruth right before that trip. She says, go each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. And when Ruth and Orpah object, saying, you know, we're not going to leave you, Naomi says, return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Return, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you wait until they were grown? No, my daughters, for it is harder for me than for you. For the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. So I think the first thing that hits us in the face when we hear these words of lament is how remarkable it is that Naomi should release her daughters-in-law at this particular point in the narrative. You know, if I had just lost everything and was attempting a perilous journey home, I think I'd want to keep those who remain to me close. You know, cutting her daughters-in-law loose to look after themselves rather than her is not just an act of altruism. Um, it could be also seen as an act of grim surrender. Um, and as my writer friend Tessa Afshar points out to me, she did a study of Ruth called The Way Home. It's, Nam is basically given up on life altogether at this point. She's just saying, you know, it's over for me. Don't bind your fate to mind, to my fate. Um, and if we listen to the specific imagery Naomi uses to express this grim surrender, it's really striking because it's biological in nature. She talks about her womb. 
which is old and empty, no longer able to bear sons for Ruth and Orpah. Now, as far as painful speech goes, you can't get more like elemental and intense than this. Naomi has basically been stripped down to a near cellular level by her suffering. Life has betrayed her. Her body has betrayed her. That which defined her as a wife and a mother now amounts to nothing. And it's like she has a famine going on under her own skin that robs her of the ability to sustain human life anymore, including her own. And um, I have to credit my, my Hebrew Bible teacher with telling me, you know, in this book, which has such tragedy and actually comedy in it, whatever happens to the land with the famine also bears direct um, influence on what happens to the people. So as we see, again, I was talking about that biology of what's going on with Naomi. As the land is stripped, Naomi is stripped. So I'm listening to this biological um, imagery that Naomi is using. And as a Christian, I can't hear her reference to her empty womb without thinking about Jesus at the Last Supper when he says, this is my body given for you. Because he's about to do what only the Son of God can do, which is atone for our sins. But he has to do it through, like, quintessentially human means. He has to sacrifice his physical body. And it's like there's this consistent witness throughout the scripture that we cannot be separated from our biological selves. We are not wisps of spiritual light. We are flesh and blood. And that which we do and experience with our bodies, you know, defines the core of who we are as much as our thoughts and our feelings do. So by describing her empty womb, Naomi is saying that she is at her core, utterly ravaged and empty. And before we move on to her speech revealing her love, which I think you can already, you might have probably been able to start to hear in that quote that I just read you, I want to highlight two words in the Hebrew that we should file away for later. And the first is the word for rest, which comes from the root nuach, from which we get the name Noah. Um, when Naomi says, may the Lord grant that you find rest, each in the house of her husband, what we are hearing is not like just a grace, gracious benediction from a mother figure to a daughter figure. What we are hearing is the essence of how Naomi defines rest. And once again, it is a very concrete, physical definition. Having a husband and a household to call your own. It's not a theoretical thing. And the other word that I want to point out to you is harder. It is harder for me than for you, for the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. That word would better be translated bitter from the Hebrew root ma'ar, because that too is a body-centered word, because the entry point by which we understand the experience of bitter is through our mouths by taste, right? That strong physical sensation is what makes the word bitter such a compelling and relatable description of an emotional experience. So I think Naomi would certainly agree, because when she and Ruth, who has chosen to stay with her while Orpah returns home, when they finally arrive in Bethlehem, she repeats this word, but she ratchets it up a notch. Naomi has been so disfigured by her pain 
that her friends and neighbors in Bethlehem take one look at her and ask, is this Naomi? And, you know, Peter, you're talking about that, that, I mean, I'm sorry, it was Bill, um, that Hebrew name means, um, as far as we can say, pleasant, pleasantness, pleasant. And here's how she responds. She says, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. It's that bitter word. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi? Since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me. And it's interesting. She doesn't say, call me Mara because I feel so bitter. She says, call me Mara because the Lord has done something to me. And wow. we'll get into that later. There's wow. a, she's definitely pointing some fingers here. Mm-hmm. Rebecca, what a great start. We're talking about Naomi today, and I didn't say that correctly. Say it one more time <laughs> for me correctly. Um, Naomi. Naomi. All right. Yeah. I wonder how Peter can say that. Yeah, no, it sounds like you guys have got it covered. <laughs> not, not sure I want to try that one. <laughs> All right, let's take a short break. When we come back, we'll continue our study of uh, Naomi in the Old Testament with Dr. Rebecca Ree. We'll be right back. We are studying Old Testament once again on this day. We do this on Wednesdays at 5 o'clock Central Time. Our guest is in the East Coast time, Dr. Rebecca Reese. She's in the Connecticut area. She earned her PhD in religion and literature from Boston University. You can always go to her website, RebeccaRee.net, and see her brilliant writing and blogging. Uh, Peter, I think during the break you had mentioned something you wanted to ask Rebecca before we uh, resumed. Yeah, Rebecca, I'm wondering if you could say just a bit more about the pain of infertility uh, that we see sort of arcing throughout Scripture, because I, I have a suspicion that there's a lot of people that live with that hidden pain today uh, and, and really could maybe empathize with uh, um, this experience of infertility. I don't think we talk about it a lot. And so maybe just some words of, of help or wisdom from the text for people who are struggling with that today. Yeah, I think we're going to get we're going to touch upon that kind of indirectly. But oh, what I'll do is shine a light sort of more directly prefacing that by saying, um, so in the Hebrew Bible, um, <laughs> for whatever reason, it's never the seed. It's the, the seed is always good. So it's never really a man's problem. It's always a woman's problem, um, the, the, a woman being barren. And um, I think that would track with women feeling, well, okay, yes, I may be part of a couple, but this falls, it's, a, it's that biology thing again, this falls uniquely on me. I'm feeling this, the weight of this uniquely on me or especially on me. Um, and I think um, when we talk about Naomi's picture of God, um, that's going to line up nicely with um, how people walk through that experience of infertility because it like, like the famine, you know, in this case, the famine's at least 10 years that they're dealing with um, and like having those themes of death, um, these are long-term struggles. These are not something that, you know, you can just snap your fingers and say, oh, you know, I, I feel great now, or, oh, I, I'm not going to worry about this anymore. Um, and there's no way to stop 
from comparing your experience to other people's experience when people all around you are having seemingly having children left and right with a lot of ease. So um, I think like let's let's talk about that more specifically when we get to Naomi's picture of God. Um, right. Because I, I think that will that may speak to that a little bit. It's just like Peter to ask questions out of order, just so you know, Rebecca. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I still can't say the name, so I'm going to work on that during the next segment. All right. <laughs> okay. So we were talking about Naomi. Um, you know, don't call me Naomi. Call me um, Mara, which we were talking about means bitter. And you know, it's not just an overwhelming feeling in Naomi's world. It's become her very identity, the essence of how she defines herself. You know, it has become her new name. And if there's a more powerful way for a human woman to cry out in agony, I would really be hard-pressed to find it. Because Naomi holds back nothing in her soul, but shouts out every ounce of how shattered she is over the death of her loved ones and the inescapable horror of her current existence. I mean, she refuses to sugarcoat it, soften it, or be silent about it, no matter what others, and I would say, including God, may think. And that's what makes my next point so unexpected, and which endears Naomi to me even more, which is Naomi's speech expresses love, specifically in two ways. So the first way is through terms of endearment. Um, considering how utterly de- devastated Naomi is, I would give her a total pass when it comes to worrying about the feelings and the fates of other people, I would say, you know, you have enough trauma to deal with. Um, You don't have to worry about showing any love. But in the speech that we've already heard from Naomi thus far, that's exactly what she does. And when I started reading this story in Hebrew, I started to see a discrepancy between how the narrator describes Ruth and how Naomi addresses her. The narrator consistently refers to Ruth, and in the beginning, Orpah as well, as daughter-in-law. And the Hebrew word for that is halah. And another word the narrator uses is moabites to emphasize Ruth's foreignness. But in contrast, Naomi repeatedly calls Ruth my daughter almost every single time she addresses her in the story. Seven times we hear, in a four-chapter story, seven times we hear my daughter, or Bati, echoing out of Naomi's mouth, including two times that she speaks to Ruth and Orpah together. So not once does Naomi call Ruth Ruth. With, with Naomi, my daughter is Ruth's name. And I think this provides a nice juxtaposition with what we just heard earlier. If Naomi has renamed herself Bitter, emphasize her pain, then she has just renamed Ruth Bati, or my daughter, to emphasize her love. And this just floors me because it implies that when you think you are too traumatized to show anything but bitter grief, you may actually have a well of love for others to give out like a cool drink. The people that God has put in your life who will not leave you when the going gets tough. That just floors me. Mm. Um, and then let's talk about the speech, what else her speech, how else her speech expresses love, which is number two, practical wisdom and instruction. Um, besides naming Ruth my daughter, um, Naomi speaks love to Ruth through instruction. So let me flesh that out. And this is the part where we get into some adult themes, but I'll, I'll keep things nice and uh, decent. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
when Naomi and Ruth arrive in Bethlehem, it's the time of the barley harvest, right? So it was customary for poor people to go out into the fields and pick up whatever the harvesters left behind. With Naomi's permission, Ruth just, quote unquote, happens to end up in a field belonging to a godly, wealthy, and mature man named Boaz. And he arranges protection for Ruth as she works in his fields. He's very generous to her every chance he gets. And so thus, Naomi and Ruth start to gain a little stability after all their dangerous travels and their food insecurity. And Naomi takes note of that. You know, she's a very observant person. And she um, takes note of the fact that Boaz is actually a very close relative of her late husband. And so she says to Ruth, you can listen to this, she says, my daughter, shall I not seek security for you that it may be well with you? And now, is not Boaz our kinsman? Behold, he winnows barley at the threshing floor tonight. Wash yourself, therefore, and anoint yourself and put on your best clothes and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. And it shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies and you shall go and uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what you shall do. So the first thing I want to point out is that we hear a repetition of that earlier word in this speech. Remember the word nuach or rest. Um, Naomi says, when she, when she says, may the Lord grant that you find rest in the house of your husband. This is precisely the word Naomi uses when she says, my daughter, shall I not seek security for you? I'm not quite sure why that, that some, a lot of translations don't just say, shall I not find rest for you? Because this is the same word. Um, so Naomi is officially on the hunt to secure for Ruth the very concrete thing that was ripped away from them before, the rest of having a husband and a household to be a part of. And the funny thing is, while old age might have been a problem, you know, that old biology we were talking about may have been a problem for Naomi in terms of finding rest for Ruth, it's actually going to be an advantage in the scheme that she's cook cooking up this time around. So to understand the practical instructions Naomi provides Ruth, the original Hebrew text is very useful. First, we need to understand what Naomi says when she says, pay attention to where Boaz lays down and uncover his feet. That feet in the Hebrew Bible can be a euphemism for a person's private parts. So Naomi is telling Ruth to uncover Boaz's lower body. Whoa. Okay. Point number one. That's that might be point number one, and a good place to take a break. Um, so uh, <laughs> this is where my connection actually got fuzzy. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I got to check my mic when we come back. Hopefully, you'll still be here, Dr. Rebecca Ree is our guest. We're continuing our study in Old Testament, and we're talking about Naomi. And I didn't say that right, but that's all right. We'll be right back with lots more. Dr. Peter Capster and I are always glad to have Rebecca on the show, and we'll be right back. Show with Bill Arno, drive time, drive time. 
let's get it started. Jump in your car. What's for dinner? It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. If you're just climbing into your car, we are in our Old Testament series with Dr. Rebecca Ree, and we're talking about Naomi today, and you've come just at the right time because things are going to heat up a little bit. We're getting to that passage in Scripture, which I know many theologians have debated, and I'm curious to see what you're going to say next, Rebecca. So, yeah, so Naomi is instructing Ruth what to do um, as the, the on the threshing floor with uh, Boaz as he, after he's had... Um, a, a fine and festive time and is sleeping. So she's telling um, Naomi, I mean, Naomi's telling Ruth to go and uncover his quote-unquote feet, which is a euphemism for private parts. So she's saying, you know, uncover his lower part of his body. And then the second thing she tells him to do is, you know, uh, lie down by those feet. And so the, the Hebrew verb for um, lie down is shahav. And that very verb is often used in sexual context. And I'll give you a, a primo example of this. When Joseph was working as a slave in um, Potiphar's house and Potiphar's wife takes notice of him and um, thinks he's really cute, she says, lie with me. And she's not talking about him taking a, a nice little nap at her feet. She's saying, you know, have sex with me. Mm-hmm. So same, ver- same verb, lie with me, shahab. So this is the verb that's being used there. So, and then, and then the third thing is, she says, you know, take a shower, anoint your body, wear your best clothes. And there again, it's that emphasis on the physical body at a pivotal point. You get the picture of what Naomi is instructing Ruth to, to do. And Naomi is, again, so such an observer of human nature. She fully expects an older man like Boaz to be really jazzed about the fact that a young woman like Ruth is offering herself both physically and emotionally to him. And indeed, that's what happens. When Boaz wakes up and gathers his wits about him, he says to Ruth, may you be blessed of the Lord by not going after young men, whether poor or rich. So doesn't that all start to fall in place a little more about what, you know, what that conversation that they're having. And then things start to move very fast in the story, but in a good direction rather than a spiral into death and direction because Boaz promises to handle everything properly. He's going to, he promises to legally redeem Ruth by marrying her, um, meaning he'll stand in the place of her former husband, Mahlon, and raise up any children they have as part of her husband's legacy. But Boaz can only do this by buying a field um, that Elimelech, Naomi's husband owned, but he has to clear that sale with one relative who has a greater claim to the land than he himself does. So he loads, you know, Ruth up with more grain and more reassurances. And he says, you know, I'm going to take care of business. And Ruth goes home and reports this to Naomi. And that's when we hear the very last words Naomi says in the story, which are also words of wisdom. She says, wait, my daughter, until you know how the matter turns out for the man will not rest until he has settled it today. Now we hear that word rest and we might think it's the same Noah, Noah word, but it's actually a different word. It's shahot. And it means be quiet. The man will not be quiet until he's settled the matter today. And it's funny because I did something crazy. I, I often do this. I counted up all the words each character says. I thought um, Naomi might be the, the most prolific speaker. It's actually Boaz. 
And the reason Boaz is the most prolific speaker is because he says all this business at the gate of the city to settle getting Ruth, you know, as his wife. And I think it's hysterical because after she kind of offers herself physically to him and he is so jazzed about the fact that he is an older man is going to be able to have hopefully this younger woman as his wife, suddenly Boaz's immediate future is, um, you know, so uh, much more invigorating and robust than it was just the day before. (laughs) 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 So that's why he seems to me he's in such a hurry to get this matter settled. And I think Naomi knows that. So that's part of her love in in giving instruction that's going to um, become very fruitful. Um, So, these are, again, not just wise words, they're prophetic words, because Boaz indeed does not keep quiet, but he settles the matter. He speaks 99 words in a rush to acquire Ruth as his wife. So when Boaz and Ruth do get married, something so hauntingly beautiful happens that is a direct result of Naomi giving love through affection and practical wisdom. Ruth has a baby boy. And that's an auspicious event that invites commentary from the very people who noticed Naomi's disfigurement and suffering a while back. It's the women of the town. And you know, the ones that said, is this Naomi? You know, the, the people that said, is this Naomi? Now they're saying, blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer today. And may his name become famous in Israel. May he also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and is better to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap. And that lap word could also be translated as bosom, like just the part of you where you would hold somebody that you care for close, and became his nurse. And the neighbor women gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. So they named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. So what I find so hauntingly beautiful is that we've come full circle, that whereas the story began with Naomi's empty womb, it ends with her full lap and into which has been placed a baby, which who will be the forefather of David. And because of the love between them, Ruth's baby is Naomi's baby too. Naomi's personal famine is over and death does not win, but life. And so let me maybe... Dr. Kastner, go back to what you were saying about people's experience with barrenness, that um, whether, you know, if you know, anyone out there who's listening, whether you feel like you're like Naomi at the beginning of the story, whether you're experiencing an actual biological barrenness or you in a different way, whether it's more of a metaphor for your life, you feel like your life is nothing but an empty, ravaged womb. Um, what we're learning from this story is that with God, a different season may be just around the corner, a season of the full lap where there is still an important role for you to play. Naomi became Obed's nurse. That was her job and that was her joy. And God may be preparing a season for you too as your time time of famine comes to an end. But her life wasn't over. She still had a chapter of being a nurse. She still had a job and a joy to do. Um, so let's talk about the final point. Um, Naomi's speech reveals her picture of God. 
which at first glance is kind of all over the place and humorously so. You know, it, it, she makes kind of two general general kinds of statements she makes about God in the narrative. The first is blessings, right? She she says, may the Lord deal kindly with you to her daughters-in-law. In the, in the field, she says about Boaz, may he be blessed of the Lord who has not withdrawn his kindness from the living and the dead. And both times, the word kindness is hesed, which is a very comprehensive word semantically. It means loyalty, goodness, faithfully. It's used throughout the Psalms to describe God. So objectively, we know that Naomi knows that God is a font of blessing and a giver of good gifts, a preserver of life. But, and there's a big but here, she makes some accusations of what, as well about God. She, you know, the de- declarations of praise are somewhat tempered by her more subjective statements about God. I mean, um, it's you know, she when she when when the daughters-in-law want to stay, she says, "No, don't stay with me. It is far more bitter for me than for you, for the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me." Again, it's that dramatic image based on the human body—an infinitely powerful hand raised up against a frail old woman. And then there's an even stronger accusation that emerges when Ruth and Naomi get to Bethlehem, and Naomi really ratchets up the rhetoric. Um, I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Lord Almighty and the El- Almighty has afflicted me? So if you put these blessings and accusations together, what you get is a picture of, well, God is re- there's a God who's really good, but just not to me. Um, that's not Naomi. I mean, and who who of us has not privately felt that and felt that very strongly, especially when you're in that place of comparison. I mean, I'm raising an autistic son and sometimes when I'm around other parents and I see the conversations that they have with their children and I see things that their, their children are doing that my, my son may not ever do. I can have thoughts like that about God. Oh, well, God is obviously good. He's a giver of good gifts, just not to me. Um, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, for, for God makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. But in Naomi, not, not in Naomi's world. Her God plays favorites. He hits some people harder than others when it comes out to meeting out disaster. Um, so I don't know, Peter, I'm not sure if that kind of touches upon um, what you're you were asking me before, but I think um, definitely this story recognizes that um, it's part of being human to feel that way, that God treats others. When you just look at life around you, that God treats others differently than he's treating you. And it's hard to reconcile that with the, the scripture saying that he's good to everyone. No, just quickly, Rebecca, because the, the point you made about uh, Naomi being able to attend towards the future, even though it wasn't birthed from her, seems like it's a key part of the biblical text, that having families and children uh, was less about uh, checking something off your list that you want for your life. It really is about something related to the future. And she she seemed to play a pretty key role in that on behalf of the people. Right. And we're going to talk about that as one of our takeaway points, which is, so, see, you're setting me up so nicely. So... Um, <laughs> So uh, one of the questions becomes now that we see this, you know, this this kind of inner conflict within Naomi about the push and pull between God being good and not so good. Um, 
does the text ever condemn Naomi for these accusations? Important question. Mm. And I would say the text doesn't condemn Naomi, but it does esteem her too much to let her stand uncorrected. And all the complaining regarding God's vindictiveness that we hear at the beginning of the story is met with a strong response at the end of the story. The people of Bethlehem, whom Naomi tells to call her Mara, they set the record straight about God in the final verses of the book. Then the women said to Naomi, blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer today. And may his name become famous in Israel. May also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better than, to you than seven sons has given birth to him. And what I love about this speech is not only that it points out that God has actually been very good to Naomi, it points out how he's been good. You know, one is a new way, a new baby to restore and sustain life. But the other is an old way, which is Ruth's ongoing love for Naomi that is better than seven sons. Naomi perhaps needs to be reminded that it may, it may have looked like God had forsaken her, but he was there the whole time in the person of Ruth, who would not leave her because she loved her so much. And it's a reminder to us all, let's not take the blessings that remain with us in hard times for granted when we are struggling. So good. We'll take a little break. We're talking to Dr. Rebecca Ree as we continue our Old Testament study. We're talking to you about Naomi. If you just joined us, you're not going to want to miss any of this. If you did, make sure you go back and hear the podcast from the beginning. MyFaithRadio.com, Afternoons with Bill Show page. It's all there. We'll take a short break and be right back. with Dr. Rebecca Reed talking about Naomi. It's in the book of Ruth. And what a study this has been so far, Peter. I'm loving this. Yeah, incredible material. There's yep. just so much in here. And Rebecca has a great way of teasing it all out, for sure. She really does. <laughs> she really does. Rebecca, I think we're going to head now towards the finish line in terms of uh, maybe some takeaways, and, and, yep. and we're going to tie up some loose ends here. Yep, exactly. So I have two takeaway points. And um, they're, they're pretty significant. I think um, the things that Naomi, the first is that the first is that the things that Naomi manages to give out during her season of pain are things she already has within her. And that affection and that practical wisdom that comes with age, she's not as empty as she thinks she is. And perhaps we aren't either. And when we look within our inner well and we end up giving out of those things that we already have, um, it actually ends up being very good for us, just like it actually ended up being a very good thing for Naomi. In the kingdom of God, the pouring out of love is always a life-giving act, both for the giver and the receiver. And by pouring out love, we find our purpose, which for Naomi was getting to be that nurse for Obed. And the second takeaway point, which is kind of a huge one to keep in your mind when you're reading the Hebrew narrative in general, is 
death does not win in this story. Life does. And I want to give you one more Hebrew word to kind of um, learn from that, that emphasizes this. So the opening of Ruth are the deaths of Elimelech, Mahlon, and Helion, right? Mm-hmm. But in the end of Ruth is the generations, and these are the generations of Perez. And basically, Perez is one of the twin sons of Tamar from before that we studied her. Um, it's a family tree that traces out the lineage of David. So whenever in the Hebrew Bible you hear that phrase, these are the generations, that generation word is toledot. And it, also, it does mean, you know, that line, that lineage, that listing of names. But it also means, the, story, the word also means story or account. This is the story. And we see that used, toledot, in the very um, opening of the Bible, Genesis 2. You know, this is the story of the creation of the heavens and the earth. So life is constantly restored to believers in the Lord God, and it comes in the form of a story or a testimony. It's not an instant thing, but it's a path that has to be walked out, um, just like Naomi had to walk out her path. But God provided her loving, a loving companion, and then amazing transformations happen in us along the way that in the end can be shared with others to good purpose. I think that's what, you know, was meant when we comfort others, that the comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted. We, we can't really genuinely give out that which we have not received ourselves. So, yes, we may become part of a lineage, a tole dope, but yes, we have a tole dope literally written into, you could argue, our very biology that we have to share and to um, be for other people around us. And Rebecca, I know one of the loose ends came from earlier on in the story when you were talking about uh, the interaction between Ruth and Boaz and, um, and and just some of the the metaphors that were being used there. Correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that in Jewish tradition, typically um, sexual union came at the end of the betrothal period and the bridegroom preparing a place for the bride, and it was the celebration of the new union. But in unique circumstances in this case, it could be that the sexual union comes first, followed by the public celebration, but that both were actually needed. Otherwise, it was considered um, to be inappropriate in terms of its expression. Like, how do we understand the situation with Ruth and and Boaz um, with the metaphors that are at play? Yeah, I I thought about a lot about that, too, because I'm not an expert on, you know, well, ancient Hebrew uh, uh, marriages, but I do know that what, what stuck out with me when I was reading the story was Naomi really, when she gives Naomi, uh, Ruth these uh, very precise instructions that are sexual in nature, she really trusts Boaz to do the right thing with them, which, which he does. He doesn't take advantage of Ruth in some way and then leave her um, spoiled for marriage for someone else or something. I'm not sure how to say it. He does everything properly, and also what brings it's also what brings the last bit of, of drama of you know will it happen, will it not happen to the story. It makes for good narrative as well. But um, yeah, and there, there's also an, uh, a visual image before he sends Ruth home to her mother-in-law. He says, "Hold out your apron or hold out your cloak," and he fills it with seed before she goes home. And that's just like a visual image of what's going to happen: the toledot, the giving of the seed. The seed is going to continue. It's going to it's going to progress, and we're going to have more life come out from this. Um, so, does that help at all? Yeah, it really does help for sure. Rebecca, is this an illustration of like a really good mother-in-law, daughter-in-law relationship? 
people read this and go, boy, this is really, really <laughs> nice. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting because um, when you look at the lineage of Jesus, you just see how many foreigners and would-be harlots and mm-hmm. all kinds of things populate, you know, all too human. In other um, mythologies and, gene- you know, genealogies of different cultures, people um, emphasize other features that they want their um, antecedents to have. Um I, my Hebrew Bible teacher told me that she did a study and she could not find dialogue between a mother and a daughter in the entire Hebrew Bible. This right. is the close. This is the closest we come to it with Ruth and and Naomi. And I think the fact that Ruth is a foreigner and she and and that the women of Bethlehem say she's better to you than seven sons. I mean, mm-hmm. that's just it. Just just goes to show you that love knows no bounds in the kingdom of God and what He's going to produce from that love even when you think you're utterly depleted and have nothing to give, Mm -hmm. what he's going to do with that love. Rebecca, do you know why uh, Ruth and Orpah made different decisions? Didn't they originally both agree to go back, and then Naomi sort of talked them out of it, and Orpah said, okay, and Ruth said, no, I'm coming with. You know, it's one of those things, and I think, again, this is a good way. This is how I approach Hebrew narrative when I have questions like that. I think any question is fair game because I believe and I think that, you know, rabbinical study shows, you know, they weren't afraid to ask any question, no matter how far-fetched a question they asked it. I mean, that's what the whole Talmudic study is, a lot of questions that you, you're like, oh, where did that come from? But um, so I think it's fair game to ask any question of Hebrew narrative, such as why did they make two different varied decisions? But the one that you, and, and I think the Bible can stand up to any question that you ask it. But at the last question in your line of questioning must always be, is that a priority for the text? You always have to go back to the level of language and the level of text and see whether there's any commentary in the text itself one way or the other. So just like the women of Bethlehem kind of corrected Naomi's uh, picture of God at the end, I don't think the text says, says one way or another why the two daughters-in-law made different decisions. So I don't think it's a priority for the text. In some ways, I don't think the text, quote unquote, cares about that point. It has other priorities that it's trying to get to. And Rebecca, I've heard too, as part of this story, that some of the beauty of what Naomi, when when she went through so much pain and suffering, but bringing Ruth back and, and Ruth making the decision to follow Naomi is that there was a bit of redemption uh, of the Moabite past, because my understanding is, mm-hmm. is that the Moabites descended from the incestuous daughters of Lot. And so we see this daughter of Moab come back into the promised land, and then the lineage of Jesus comes from her. Is that part of what we see in the story, too? Absolutely. Moab is kind of an iffy, and for other reasons, I mean, you're absolutely right. I think there's other um, indications in the text why Moab, you know, they're, they're kind of good people, bad people, you know, not not sterling. We're kind of unsure. Um, and this, yes, definitely the fact that Ruth becomes such a paragon of virtue in this story um, just, again, emphasizes that point of God takes people, God looks at the heart and he takes, he takes from where he will and redeems stories. Yes. I, I hate to admit it, but that was a pretty good question, Peter, that you gave, but it was a, even a more brilliant answer by Rebecca. So thank you, Rebecca. And when I, when I, when I look at Ruth and her response, again, I'm reminded that she is giving full allegiance to God without even really knowing what the future was going to hold. Mm-hmm. Yes. And she, there comes something there, there, there's something to be said about not having anything to lose anymore. Getting down to that point where you're at the end of your rope mm-hmm. um, and the end of your rope, again, there may be a new season right around the corner for you, 
But sometimes you do have to get to the place where you're like, well, my God will be your God. My, your God will be my God. And wherever you die, bury me there too, because I have nothing left to lose. Mm-hmm. You're, the, you're the best thing I have right now in my life. And I'm going to go with that. Yeah. You said a lot of very profound things in this hour, and I wrote them down. Unfortunately, I can't read my own handwriting. So <laughs> <laughs> the good news is I have your email, and I will probably just email you and ask you these questions because they're so good and uh, such a delight having you on the program. Um, Peter, any closing thoughts? Because we're almost out of time, about a minute left. Yeah, no, I just think that this is one of those stories where Rebecca taking us into it this way. There's a lot in the story, and I, and I am going to listen back, like you say, Bill, because I think just for our lives today, there's so much that really parallels our experience. So there's so much beauty and pain and sorrow and hope. It's just all mixed together, and she did just a great job walking us through it. Yeah. Rebecca, you are an absolute delight. Thank you once again for being our uh, guest on, on the show. We just love having you. It's my absolute pleasure, believe me. Yeah, I actually believe you when you say that. That's uh, all the show we have for today. And that wraps up our show for the day. Thank you for joining us. I hope you have a wonderful evening as you put your head on the pillow tonight. Know that God's working out his great plan in your life. And he loves you. I do too. See you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.